0: Here are two more voices from history, in this case, from very recent history, from around the year 2000. Uh, Tonight we will hear from an interview with uh, a telemarketer and a funeral home director. And while I recorded the part with the telemarketer uh, earlier this week, uh, it just goes to show you how much people despise telemarketers that I thought it would probably be a better idea to start with the interview with the funeral home director. And this is uh, a woman named Beverly Valentine. And I should say, I will talk more about the book uh, in the second half when we get to the telemarketer, but I will name the book right now. It is called Gig, Americans Talk About Their Jobs. And I will have a link to it in the post description. And this is what the funeral home director, Beverly Valentine, had to say back in the late 90s. I am a licensed funeral director at the Camelot Funeral Home in Mount Vernon, New York. I've been employed here for approximately 22 years. I was born in this town just up the road. I didn't want to go into the funeral business. I had some choices, some chances to do other things but well it's a family business. My mom bought this place after my dad passed away. It was an investment for her. My dad owned a bar and she didn't want to keep it after he passed because we were still young my sister and I and in the bar business you know late hours there had been a couple of robberies there one police officer had gotten killed. So she sold the bar and bought this funeral home. Then she went right on working 9-5 at New York Telephone Company. She put in 35 years before she retired. And she never physically worked here at the funeral home. It was just an investment where people worked for her. I was one of those people. I was doing social work for a while at a nursing home, which closed down. So I was unemployed and I was debating whether to go back to school to get my master's in social work. And my mom said, why don't you go to the mortuary school and get your license? Just have it in case you ever want to go into this field. And I didn't have a good argument against that. So I went to get my license and have worked here and never went back to get my master's in social work. I think in the beginning, I was more scared than anything else, just seeing somebody dead, just going back in the room, you know. I'm wondering what they're going to like, what they're going to look like. Were they in a car accident, or they killed themselves, you know, blew their brains out. You have that fear once you unwrap the body from the hospital, what you're going to see. I wasn't around deceased people a lot before this. Most of my family is still alive. We've got longevity. So I had to get over that fear, which was very hard. In some ways, I've never gotten over it. Luckily, Mount Vernon people usually die of natural causes. You know, it's a small, little, quaint town. People usually live the majority of their life here. They get older and die from cancer. That's usually the norm for us. And that's not to say I haven't seen some horrible things. I have. I've seen a kid. It sticks in my mind. Even now, when I think about it, I get upset. He was two years old. His mother and father were on crack, and they scalded him in the bathtub right here in Mount Vernon. All the skin was taken off. His face was disfigured. It was just a senseless death. I will never forget it. It makes me sick to think of it. But, you know, that was the exception. That and a few other things. I mean, I've had my share of suicides and some bad accidents. But most of what I get is someone who, you know, died fairly peacefully. And my job then is just to try to make them look as natural as possible for their families. And that's not that hard. The first thing we do when we get the body is wash it down. Then we do the incision for the embalming. That's the gory part, the bloody part. We're taking the blood out of the body and replacing it with chemical fluid so that the body will be firm, will not deteriorate. I don't like to do it myself, but it's important, you know. Embalming is for the people coming in to view you. If the body is not embalmed properly, You will have odor, and you will have leakage, and that's what we're trying to avoid. Normally, we do the embalming immediately, and then the next day we'll do the dressing and the casket. Depending on the beautician, she will sometimes do their hair in the casket, the curling or the straightening or whatever, or sometimes she'll do it while the body is still on the embalming table. If the person is older, and the hair is gray. Sometimes the family will say, well, mom wanted to go to her grave with dark hair. That was her request. So we will call the beautician and she'll do the dyeing job right on the embalming table. Once the body's in the casket, we'll do the makeup because we have fluorescent lights and they give a glow and you know, you want to get a good natural look going. So you have to do the makeup under the conditions that the body will be viewed in. Lots of times, people will bring in a picture of the person from when they were younger and they looked well, as opposed to how you see them now when they're in their 60s or 70s and have been riddled with cancer for years and look nothing like themselves. So you have a picture, you have something to go by, and that helps a good bit. And skipping a tiny bit here, she goes on to say, People need a viewing, I usually say, because there has to be some kind of closure. Even though you know that person is sick and they're going to die, I hear people all the time, they say, This can't be. That's not my mother. It doesn't look anything like her. It's that denial, you know, that this person is dead, you know. I don't want to accept it, I won't accept it, they say. I think, personally, we need something tangible for that final closure, to physically look, touch, give a kiss, a rub, whatever. So 20 years from now we can't say, well, you know, I was at Mama's funeral, but I wasn't at Mama's funeral. I know she's dead, I see pictures of her. I read the obituary, but still... It's a very emotional job. I deal with a lot of very raw feelings because when death comes, well, normally people are going to call us the day after it happens, or it might even be that the person died that morning and they call us at five that evening. They've gotten over the shock, but that's it. Okay, mom's dead, we've cried, now what are we going to do? The hospital's after them to get her out of the morgue. That's the first thing the people of the hospital say, actually. It is, well, what funeral home do you want? You know, the ink's not even dry on the death certificate, and they need the morgue space, because they only have, like, four morgue spaces down there. That's it. Four spaces. So that it's very hard. It's hard when it finally happens. And then, of course, there's the money problem. I always tell people it costs a lot to die. I don't like it, but it's true. People will come in to make funeral arrangements and they'll say, well, I buried dad 20 years ago and it wasn't so expensive. And well, did it cost the same 20 years ago as now? Not a house. And well, what did cost the same 20 years ago is what I say. What cost the same 20 years ago as now? Not a house, not a car, not tuition. It's the same thing here. An average funeral today costs about $6,000. I'd like to give out my pamphlet because everything's itemized in there. Removal from the hospital, $125. Embalming, $220. Dressing and casketing, the casket itself, flowers, the grave, that's several thousand, and so on. Just so everybody knows, they can physically see all the costs. But still, it's like the person wanting to buy a car. Oh, I want a Cadillac, but I only have Volkswagen money. You get a lot of that in burials. People say they want a nice funeral, but when you tell them what a nice funeral costs, well, they don't have that kind of money. So you have to say, how much do you have? And that's rough. Sometimes they say, I have 500. Or sometimes they say, I don't have anything. then I tell them the cheapest way is a direct cremation, and that's $1,200. But it's right from the hospital to the crematory. It's $1,200, and if you have nothing, then we will call the Department of Social Services and get you funds for cremation. They will pay for that if you truly have nothing, if you are destitute. But for most people... You can't just let someone in your family get cremated like a dog by the city because you don't have enough money to bury them properly. You know, it's like, well, that's Aunt Mary, and she was doing well at one point, but she fell on hard times. We've got to get the money up to give her a proper send-off. And so they'll scrape up the money among themselves, or maybe they have an insurance policy. Sometimes it takes them a while to get the money. Normally, I charge $25 a day to store a body. But if a family comes up and I see they're struggling, I'll forget the storage fee. But I won't give people a free funeral. Not that people don't try. People will try anything, you know. I'll say to them, I'll hold the body. I'll wait for the money. Because like, say, insurance normally takes about three to six weeks after the person dies. But I have to pay all the bills up front. The minister, the organist, the casket company, the beautician, the singer. That comes out of my pocket. I'll lay it out sometimes for people who know and where I trust them and their insurance company. People who I know and where I trust them and their insurance company. But if you come in and say, look, I don't have any money and I don't know you. Or if you've played me for a softie in the past, well, I won't do it. You can go over to Leewood Funeral Home and fool around with them. It's not easy to say no to somebody whose mother just died. But I have to do it if I want to stay in business. I've been burned too often. And skip a paragraph here. And she says, And you know what? Some of the people who try to Stick it to me. Come back again. Another family member has died, and they want me to lay out for another funeral. I don't understand it. I could tell you stories about this all day that would make your hair stand on top of your head. didn't used to be that way, but these are the caliber of people you're dealing with. People who are sneaky. But you still... I'm getting excited here. I'm overstating myself. I still have the sweet, nice people... I still have the sweet, nice people that come in and say, I want the best for mom or dad. Tell me what the total is, and I'll get back with a bank check. No problems. I still get a lot of that. I think it depends on the family and their upbringing. Because most of the time in Mount Vernon, there's usually religion from Sunday school on up, and they're affiliated somehow with the church. So they know there's an afterlife, and they know how to behave properly and spiritually there's an acceptance religion you know it helps a lot I guess for myself I'm not sure about my religious views but I know that seeing so much death firsthand there definitely is a right way to do things a right way to live your life and I would say I appreciate life more because I do this I mean I try to appreciate every second every minute Because I know it could all end like that. And she snaps her fingers. So when there's a family reunion or a wedding or whatever coming up, and I start talking to people and they're saying, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to make it, or I'm too busy. I'm like, hey, I might not see you at this wedding, but let's try to get together. Let's take a vacation or come over to my house and have a cookout. And I insist on that and I follow up. Because I appreciate family and get-togethers more doing doing this kind of work. More so than anybody else in my family, I think. Would I go into this profession again? I don't know. It's not something that I picked. I'm not sorry that I'm in it. But some days I kind of think, well, you know, maybe there could have been something else that I'd have done better, or should have done, or whatever. But I don't know what it is people come by sometimes and say, oh, you're still here? You buried my grandfather 20 years ago. Like, I'm supposed to be somewhere else, or I should have been dead. I'm only 46. I don't like that. But then there are also times when someone comes in and they say, well, I'm glad you're still here. If somebody else in my family dies, you are the best. You buried my mother, and that was so nice, and you're the one I want for everybody. And those times, I'm glad I did stay, but I don't know. I have mixed emotions every time I open the door and come in here. I think the majority of people do that do this kind of work, you know, the people that handle death, because when somebody dies, well, I don't know that a person should deal with that every day. I don't know if that's a fair thing to ask of a person. And I'll just break in here, probably the only time in this entire interview, which is incredible to me. um, You almost see, as I've said before, just listening to someone talk about their life. um, For all of my talk about uh, figuring out plot and narrative and things like that, um, there is a a, a radiance. Mm -hmm to a good interview, to a good passage of someone simply talking about themselves. But when she says, I don't know that a person should deal with that every day. I don't know if that's a fair thing to ask of a person. I would just say that about almost any job, not just people who, who are around death. I think the becoming desensitized Or becoming inured, or used to, or whatever it is, uh, to any of the strange uh, social situations that come about because of the day-to-day jobs. I would say that about about just about anybody. Um, Not just someone who works at a funeral home, but even someone who works at McDonald's. I was struck to see that McDonald's now has to have a sign outside of its drive-through saying, not, not even saying we don't have enough employees right now, uh, please be nice, or we might be out of things, so please be nice. Doesn't even have an excuse. All it says is, uh, please be kind to our team members, that's what matters, something like that. And it strikes me that uh, someone who works the drive through and deals with people all day who have no respect for them. um, They could also say, I don't know that person should deal with that every day. I don't know if that's a fair thing to ask of a person. And in the second half of this episode where we deal with telemarketers, uh, obviously, I think the same way as well. Anything we get used to, uh, it seems this could be said about but in any case our funeral director goes on to say there's just a lot of sadness like the kid I was talking about who got all burned up that was more than I could bear I still remember it like it just happened so sad so sad and it always hurts when a child dies every time I mean if it's a disease and he's been sick with it for a long time A lot of the parents will see the death as a blessing, you know, their child isn't suffering anymore. And they'll tell me, this is the most peaceful I've seen my child since he was born. But other times, most times, when it's unexpected, the parents want to take the child out of the casket. They scream and tell me not to close it. Don't take him. You know, they just start screaming. They just can't accept it. just don't want to let go. It's just too much, you know. And then to see somebody die alone. Oh, I don't have a lot of it, but I've had it. I had a funeral last week where just four people came. The wife was dead. The children are dead. I think he had two sisters and a brother, so it was just them. He'd been sick in a nursing home for five or so years, so people probably thought he was dead already and all his friends had died. So we just had the minister, the dead person, and three people, and that was it. They got in their car and went to the cemetery and said a few words, and got back in their car, and that was it. You figure, this being such a small community, you figure, just a neighbor or someone will come. But I guess by his being in the nursing home, people lose track, or they sold their home, and he wasn't going to church, and he wasn't active in clubs anymore, nobody really came to visit him. And the sisters and brothers lived out of state, so when he died, they came in for the funeral that morning, and that night they flew out on back to where they were going. And nobody called to say, did Mr. So-and-so die? It was just, you know, cut and dry. Now think about that. You die and there's the whole big world and nobody comes. It's very hard to grapple with the fact that that happens and to live with that. The world sometimes, you know, it just seems very cold to me sometimes, cold and callous. I would like to take some solace in religion. You know, I see that a lot working with these people. It does help, but personally, I don't know what happens after we die. Most days I'm so tired I don't think about anything like that," and she laughs. To be honest, I guess the religious part of me says, yeah, there's an afterlife, because I was brought up, you know, you're going to heaven and God and all that, and you're going to see your loved ones. That's what I'd like to believe, and there's a part of me, I guess, that does believe that. But there's another part of me that is like, nobody's come back to tell us, it's over with, let's just forget about it, and go on with life. You know what I'm saying? Life is so short, it's like a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. There's nothing you can do about it, nothing at all. So I don't have any advice for anybody, except appreciate your loved ones around you your family, friends, or whatever, because death is quicker than you think. And that is Beverly Valentine, funeral home director in Mount Vernon, New York. And uh, I wonder if she is still there, or indeed if this book uses pen names, uh, pseudonyms for people. But... uh, There we have it now onto what to most of us is even more terrifying work, uh, telemarketers. I was wondering a while back if there was a successor to what Studs Terkel was doing, going around and getting the oral histories of work or of basically of life as it is now, and I found a book published in the year 2000 called Gig, Americans Talk About Their Jobs, and the editors come out right away and say that it is meant to be a kind of update of Studs Terkel's working. And you realize right away that uh, even by the title, the book is already dated. The word gig having many other meanings in 2022 than it did in the year 2000. But there are enough interviews in here and enough really interesting ones and even more profane ones than what Studs Terkel was dealing with that uh, they're really worth reading from. And the very first one will be uh, a telemarketing group supervisor. And I'm wary almost of reading from this one because uh, that's one thing that hasn't dated. Uh, People despise telemarketers as much in 2022 as they did in the year 2000. But for a few months back in 2004, I was a telemarketer. And uh, so I have a special affinity and sympathy for uh, the situation that I'm about to read. And I hope that uh, people will continue listening, even if, is, even, even if it is only, perhaps, to hate-listen for a bit on the inside of a profession that most people do not like at all. This is the supervisor of a, a telemarketing group and he says this I'm a trainer and a supervisor at a telemarketing firm called dial America marketing incorporated it's a fairly big company it started out 40 or 50 years ago selling for time life and today it has a bunch of different divisions headquarters is in New Jersey and I think there's like 60 offices across the country this office here is in Bloomington Indiana We only do phone sales. We are hired by clients, and we are the front end, meaning we ship nothing, we handle no goods, no money, we just make calls. Everything else is dealt with by the client. I supervise 50 telemarketers every night on the evening shift, which is 5.30 to 10 p.m., and in addition, there's usually several people in here every night who are new, so I train them. We are hiring and training constantly because the turnover rate is 60%. And that is about what I remember. I think I was hired in August and by, perhaps it was early August, and by the end of September, uh, I was gone because I needed a bunch of money during that time. And I worked at a Rite Aid uh, during the day and a few hours at night uh, at the telemarketer. And that sounds about right. The turnover rate is 60%. He says, that is weekly a 60% turnover, meaning come next Monday, 60% of the people I work with today will be gone. And he laughs. I have one of the steadiest jobs in the company because there are always so many people needing to be trained. My days are all pretty similar. I get in at 4 in the afternoon, and first thing I look at all the applications of the new people, We hire and train almost everyone who applies. All you have to do is be at least 18 and have an 8th grade education, and he laughs. High school is a plus. So, you know, I'm not checking the applications too rigorously. Mostly, I'm just looking to see whether they spelled everything correctly. Because when they get on the phone, they're going to be reading off scripts. So if they have a lot of misspellings, I put them on a list to check if they can read well enough to do the job, and almost all of them can and I remember my interview for the place. I was carrying around a copy of Cormac McCarthy's uh, <laughs> Blood Meridian. I don't know why uh, I thought that was a good idea to bring. Uh, it was probably just in my backpack, and I assumed that um, I, was wearing <clears throat> I was wearing a shirt and tie, and that would be enough. But um, I'm sure based on my resume, such as it was, I didn't have very much to say other than the fact that. I was trying to run a small press, and I mentioned books or something, and I remember uh, how good the interviewer was, because he was probably like this guy. You find what the interviewee is interested in, and you make it sound as if uh, that's a perfect fit, or that's wonderful, It's make it all sound very encouraging. So it was nice to read this part. All you need is... A high school uh any of the great education and you have to be 18 years old that is all i really needed i didn't need to bring out the cormac mccarthy uh, he says then i prepare things in the room i turn on all the computers and put out new foam headsets every trainee gets their own set of foam headphones to prevent disease they also get sanitary wipes to clean their mouthpieces I put all that stuff in a plastic bag with their name and employee number in front of the computers. Around five o'clock the employees show up. The veterans, the people who've been here for at least a day, those are the veterans, go into the main room and start their shifts. All the trainees file into a smaller room where we have them fill out paperwork, tax forms and health forms. Then I turn on the VCR and I say, this is the video you are going to be selling. I'll see you in 15 minutes, and I walk out, and they sit there and watch it, and there is a window I can look through to watch them. Usually, they're all frightened and staring at the TV, and they're not sure what to expect from their job, and I like that. I try to intimidate them a bit, so they know even though this is a telemarketing job, they have to take it seriously, and here I sort of groaned because I thought that this was going to be, this guy was gonna end up being like the other uh, salespeople that I've come across in this book, where they take it seriously and they mean that seriousness, and this whole job is part of their identity, but uh, you will be surprised. The surprise is the reason that I'm reading this here now. Um, After the video, I go back in and train them, I always start off with a speech about how telemarketing is the worst job you can have in the world, because 85% of the people you're trying to sell to will say no. Even if they like what you're selling, even if you're a nice person, they will say no simply because you are a telemarketer. I tell them they're going to get yelled at. People are going to say things like, do you know that you're going to hell? And I had one woman tell me once. Um, I should say that I was doing political calls I won't say for which party like it, it doesn't matter uh, I believe it was the DCC Democratic Congressional Campaign DCCC um, but uh, I needed a job and I'm sure I would have done calls for just about anybody at the time um, and I remember coming in one day on a Sunday and some old woman ripping my head off because I was calling on the Sabbath and uh, that was sort of what happened. About the most eventful thing that I can remember happening at my telemarketing job, we were on the top floor in uh, a building on Carson Street in Pittsburgh, one of the one of those new buildings with wraparound windows, and in September of 2004 there was a great spate of uh, uh, torrential rainstorms and thunderstorms and there was a point, since you could see the river and the bridges uh, out the windows, uh, there was the question at one point whether or not we all needed to close and go home. And at the same time, there was the question of, uh, could we get home? Um, And the rest of the time, I just remember reading a lot there in between calls. I mentioned in the very last uh, episode here The Night That I Bought Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, and that was one of the books I read over again uh, while I was living in Pittsburgh in 2004. And the other was the, uh, the other book was The Letters of Hart Crane, and that happens to, to have been the book where I first came across the experimental magazine from the early 1920s called S4N. And that ended up becoming the name of the small press that I still run called S4N Books. But at the time, um, it's strange. I remember exactly where I was in that huge windowed room on my break reading the letters of Hart Crane. And I remember coming across those three letters, uh, the, the letters and the numbers S4N, and I knew immediately that is the name of a press. Strange how you know those things and how um, they're just right in the moment, um so yes, I tell them they are all going to get yelled at. People are going to say things like, "Do you know you're going to hell? They're going to get the Jesus diatribe. they're going to get sworn at and cussed out in every way imaginable. I tell the trainees this until I see the fear in their eyes, and then I bring them down and I say. But because this job is so bad and so tough, we are going to pay you a lot of money to do it. And that is the hook. Because if you can deal with it, you can make a ton of money, I swear. We pay seven twenty an hour plus commission. And there are some people who've been here for years who leisurely make an average of 22 bucks an hour. They are just good with it. And that's, I may have made $9 an hour by 20, 2004. And I could see how easily people could just rake in the money if they were good at it, but I never was. And I knew that I wouldn't be there beyond the end of September, so that's what happened with me. Um, Then he goes over the script a bit, and then he says this. "Uh, Beyond the script, which is the centerpiece of the call, I also try to teach some basic sales stuff to my trainees. Like the age group you want to hit is 50 to 65 years old. So you know, if you've got a gruff 30-year-old guy on the line, you might not want to push too hard or feel too bad when he says no, but if, but if it's an older voice, you know you've got a better chance. Or when you hear kids in the background crying, it's good. You offer them the video that deals with kids, and I think I was told the same thing. Uh, it's a good thing if you hear kids crying because they want to get off the phone quick, so you might want to find your way in. Uh, to get them to donate money to the Democratic Party, uh, it'll shut the kid up. So the so the parent thinks the video that they're offering, or like when you ask someone if they can hear you, okay, and they say, "Oh sure, go ahead," and you're in. And lonely people. Uh, and lonely people, obviously lonely people. They're great. They'll talk forever and give you a credit card number if you ask nice enough. A lot of times they have the TV or music on very loud in the background, they don't even notice. They're living in their own head, and that is a likely customer. But the most basic thing of all is that in order to make sales, you can't sound like a salesman. Usually the analogy I use is this. A monkey with a voice box sells more than most people who come to this job. People who you are telemarketing to don't want to talk to a salesman on the phone. They don't want to talk to someone who sounds slick, and they don't want to be intimidated. So the best way to make sales over the phone is to sound dumber than the customer. You sound dumb, first, by speaking in a monotone, and second, by talking slower than one would ever imagine talking in real life. I have to work on making them sound like that, and he laughs. It's like teaching someone to sing who can't sing well at all, but it's worth it because it makes you seem completely incidental over the phone, just a concerned National Geographic salesperson, or whatever it is, who has a really good deal and is not trying to scam anybody. Those people out there just want to feel like they're in control, so you give them that impression and work it to your advantage. And that's the whole training, teaching people to read the script and sound dumb and realize that this is the worst job in the world but if they step out of themselves, they will make some sales and make good money. Then, the rest of my shift, I'm supervising the room full of 50 telemarketers, including my new trainees. A lot of that time is spent just trying to keep everybody happy in the face of all the ridicule and adversity they're getting on the phone. And you can guess where the surprise is coming, and uh, at least to me it was a surprise. Um, I thought this guy was a career telemarketer um an intentional and a sincere career telemarketer that is an intentional and sincere supervisor of telemarketers. I thought that he perhaps had no inkling of what a sad situation it is that the only way to sell National Geographic back in two thousand or raise money for the Democratic Party as I was doing. Um, the only way to do all of these things is to intentionally create a job that is so horrible that you have a 60% turnover, that's so horrible that anyone going anyone going into it knows that they are going to be cursed at and uh, abused over the phone. Um, and this goes back to the episodes I've done on working and the sympathy that I think we need to have with people who have shitty jobs and who know they have shitty jobs and to perhaps uh, not treat them so terribly. I wonder what the equivalent of this episode would be uh, talking to the telemarketers in uh, India now or the uh, uh, the support uh, tech people in India who get our phone calls in America talking about our credit cards, or our cable bills, or our internet, or whatever it is. Um, Or who do the sales calls like this. Because now, uh, this is what the uh, telemarketing supervisor says. The customers basically are assholes. I'll say that again because it is worth repeating. And because it is true. The customers are not right. Right, that That's the usual line, the customer is always right. The customers basically are assholes. You know, good old drunk America on parade, lazy America, they've never opened their National Geographic and filled out the card that says, I do not wish to be called or written about other offers, and sent it back, postage paid. It's so easy to do that, but nobody does. Instead, you get all these angry, abusive people taking their problems out on telemarketers because they know they can. I mean, we are sort of like the people, if you want to get the aggression out. Get it out on a telemarketer. You can get pissed off at the state of American affairs just by shouting at the telemarketer who is calling you. And he skip a bit here, and he says, Personally, I think telemarketing is awful work. I started on the phones myself, so I know. I took the job because I needed money to pay off some debts. Before this, I was a floor supervisor at Payless Supermarkets, and that was a total dead end, and it paid crap. So I came here, and I worked for eight weeks, worked off my debt, but I hated it, and he laughs. I was missing Payless. I was going to quit because I couldn't take the bullshit anymore. But then they came up to me and said, we want you to be supervisor. Nobody ever in my life came up to me and said, we want you to be supervisor. Uh, he says, being a supervisor, you don't have to make phone calls. You just get a salary. You don't have to sell anything. You're just, he laughs, you're just a counselor for about 50 people. And again, this goes back to also the, uh, the episode on uh, evolution that I did a while back, uh, the evolution of How did language evolve? How did uh, we evolve to stand on two feet? Um, And again, the idea, uh, not that I have any grand uh, fixes for this, but every now and then it is incredible to realize uh, how many millions of years uh, the act of standing on two feet, how long that took to, to evolve, how long it took for language and the modes of communication that we have to evolve the use of language uh, the use of scripted language in this case all, all of these things and it is amazing that human beings uh, I won't say waste because sometimes people need jobs and this is a job I needed a job people out there still need these jobs um, it is just incredible that uh, some of those uses over millions of years, have gone into this man being a counselor for about 50 telemarketers who hate their jobs because everyone, nearly everyone they talk to, also hates them. Uh, What we should do is hate the necessity that requires it, but that's another thing. Um, So you're just a counselor for about 50 people. So I thought I'd try it, and I like it. I've been doing it three years, and I keep getting raises, and I plan to stay a while longer. It's a weird job, I guess, but I like it. I even kind of like these people I'm training. I mean, we do have freaks come in. People will get a bad call, and and they will start crying or hide in the corner or something. They'll put their faces down. Or they'll go out in the parking lot and smoke pot in their Jeep because they're feeling bad or whatever. I don't like that, but whatever, you know. Some of them are not jobs, but they're good souls. They're just trying to make some money. And the way I train them, they're very polite, very reasonable. I mean, I don't hang out with them after work or anything, but I have no problem with them at all. My problems are all with the customers. My problems are all with the customers, the people out there. It's like, haven't any of them had to work for a living? I hate seeing everybody here who really needs the money go through hell to make it. And I'll repeat that too. Actually these last three sentences I will repeat. My problems are all with the customers, the people out there. It's like haven't any of them had to work for a living? I hate seeing everybody here who really needs the money go through hell to make it. And remember, 720 an hour. I want to send a mass email to America and say, I understand telemarketers call you and bother you at home, but just to be nice but just be nice to them, okay? Just say take me off your list and then hang up. Just be nice. I doubt it would do any good and he laughs, but it would make me feel better. And again that comes from the two thousand book gig Americans talk about their jobs, and I'm sure I'll be reading more of these over the next few months. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, You can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.